Welcome to another episode of the Call Sign series of the HMG podcast. I'm your host, Gorchin, and joining me today is John. Hi, how are you going? Good, thanks, John. How are you today? Good, thanks. So John is one of the local legends for the Perth bolt action scene, um, and I'm really excited whenever you sort of come up with an idea because I know it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. If you just want to sort of tell our audience some of the things that you've worked on and what your role was in, say, for example, VC on the trail. Yeah, sure. So VC on the trail, I became aware of around two years ago. It was written by uh, a man called David Mulder, who's from New Zealand and some friends of his overseas. And uh, Jacob Bongers introduced me to the concept of creating bolt action games in Vietnam. And I got interested. And ever since then, I've, I've played the role of captain at the Rockingham Historical Gamers to try and set up a few events. Of course, COVID-19 has knocked a few of those on the head, but we're starting to build another head of steam now. Um, last year, we ran a multiplayer game for the uh, Battle of the Yardrang Valley with six players. We used a... Um, a multiplayer activation mechanic to speed the game up and we had two and a half thousand points of uh, vc and north vietnamese army facing up against an american air cavalry force and it was a fantastic game with fighter bombers um, artillery strikes and what ended up with a very very close running game with a very very slight us victory right at the end so that was great and since then i've um, made a couple of scenarios uh, and most recently i've created a firefight escalation league for vietnam which we're going to kick off on sunday this week so it's all very exciting yeah so we'll be getting into that escalation league in a little bit i remember that the battle for your drain i was uh i was sort of quote unquote company commander for the the u.s at the time and, and the first yeah. dice that came out of the bag was vc sniping my player model on the, on the table <laughs> so yeah. i don't think i did a lot of commanding after that point uh <laughs> so that that was a sort of mission you wrote as well if i remember correctly battle for your drain yeah, that's right. It was. Um, it only took probably um, a day or so to write it, but I based it off one of our um, events from another club I, I go to called Outpost Sixty Thirty, and um, yeah, it was a it was a mission um, that was really just designed for a bit of fun, and uh, I really wanted to stress test bolt action as a multiplayer system, and I was actually quite impressed with the result, uh, with a few modifications to the way the order dice is done with the multiplayer mechanic. It actually works really well. It was quite satisfying to see that, actually, especially in a Vietnam city. Yeah, I actually stole that one and used it at the Varsity event that our audience is probably now far too familiar with. Uh, where, did you, where did you come up with that? Well, I was, I was, I remember reading about other multiplayer games that people had, had sort of advertised on on sites like Bolt Action Australia and New Zealand, which I, I enjoy reading. Great content on there, some really interesting thoughts and, and um, stories on there that come up. And um, I sort of thought, you know, there's got to be a way to do this where we can have six, ten, even twenty players playing a game of bolt action, and not take most of two days to actually play the game <laughs> because the way it apparently works with the single players is a single order dice is drawn out of the bag, as we all know, and we go from there. But the way we sort of modified that was we put a coloured chit in the bag. Uh, the maximum number of chits, say a red and blue chits, would be number of red chits for the maximum number of red order dice for, say, the communist player, and the maximum number of uh, blue chits for the number of um, free world order dice for a Vietnam game. So if all the, all the US players had six or seven order dice, we'd put seven US chits in the bag, and let's say the maximum number of order dice for the communist player was 10, we'd have 10 chits in the bag for the communists, and when one of those pulled out, each, one of, each player would activate one of their units, and uh, it really sped the process up a bit. It created a bit of local superiority, but what we tended to find happened was that people played off against each other anyway, 
So it was a bit like joining three separate games together on the same table. And the social interaction that generated was actually quite hilarious. So it created more of a fun a game rather than a competitive game. I mean, we were still playing competitively, but the focus I mean, yeah. was on banter and a bit of fun. And, oh, my God, look what just happened to the artillery strike. <laughs> it was quite hilarious. So um, I think it worked out very, very well. So it was just an idea I came up with to try and make it a bit more enjoyable and make it less of a drag for players who aren't doing anything. And I wanted to make it feel like you're on the whole time. To me, war games where you're on the whole time are the most fun because you have to continuously think and react to the situation that's developing in front of you. You saying that reminds me a lot of that game of Advanced Squad Leader that we had. But that, that's uh, I think we'll save that one for another episode. Yeah, that is that actually that is probably where I get this idea of, of um, you know sort of being on all the time from. Because in that game, you really are on the whole time. You're doing something through every single phase of the game. Yeah, and all eight phases of them. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, aside from the scenarios, you actually have worked on something a little bit bigger recently for VC on the Trail. Yeah. So about um, I suppose nine months ago now, Dave put out the call to um, people like myself to uh, get involved in writing three campaign books, and the idea was we'd develop a Riverine campaign book, a uh, Jungle Warfare campaign book, and a City Fight campaign book. And uh, there's a chap in the US. Uh, who's working on that, um, Jim C. Jr. He's been working on the General Offensive or City Fight campaign book and he's basing his work around the Battle of Hawaii um, in 1968. And it's it sort of hasn't progressed a lot in recent months, but I'm sure it will come to a pretty good conclusion. Jacob got the, the task of um, running the Jungle Warfare book and I've got to talk to Jacob about pushing that one along and I took on the role of Riverine. Now, Riverine was interesting because it's it's basically introducing um, Riverine and, and uh, littoral warfare to bolt action, which we haven't seen before, apart from scenarios that involve perhaps the invasion of Normandy or Sicily or the Anzio beachhead where we might have landing craft approaching a beach and we disgorge all the troops and we run up the trenches <laughs> and hopefully some of us survive long enough to actually take over you know, a beachhead. Um, that's about as far as bolt action has gone with this. So this, this was a new area that we wanted to try and develop, leveraging off the excellent work that people at Warlord Games have done with the um, you know, the beach invasion uh, scenarios and mechanics they have. Um, so that was an interesting one. And that, that happened just before COVID. And uh, I work sort of um, as a freelance consultant. And I found that during COVID, my work dried up, so, dried up. So this was the perfect opportunity for me to just take stock and spend a month or so doing a bit of reading, you know, getting together some ideas and coming up with mechanics which would fit in quite well with bolt action um, to try and simulate in a semi-historical way, in a way that bolt action would simulate, say, an armoured warfare game or a tank war game, um, the, the engagement of riverine vessels versus infantry on, on, the, on the land, on the ground, if you like, or on a shoreline or on an island. Um, so I started with that and I started writing some stuff about... Um, you know, movement in water for both uh, watercraft, um, looking at the amphibious vehicle rules in bolt action, looking at the landing craft rules, looking at how the armour of those vehicles and the transport capacity of those vehicles is costed in game turns, and then trying to translate that to things like a tango boat, which is an armoured LCM um, right, with okay. yeah. various weapons on it. Um, so trying to sort of get that together, then looking at how we turn vehicles, because obviously you need to be able to turn these watercraft, and how do we do that in a way that makes sense, and came up with the idea of using the, the um, artillery template. 
as a, as a means of turning vessels. So we've all got one of those. That's uh, not a new template. It doesn't require 15 different sizes of circles. You what? You you just use the the circumference of sort of the different inches on the yeah. template. Yeah. So if we say uh, using a, a riverine patrol craft, which is quite maneuverable, um, we're going to use a smaller template. But if we're turning something like a a point class cutter or a or a tango boat or a river monitor, a heavily armed river monitor, an LCM, we might use a bigger bigger template. Fantastic. What an idea that is. I, I don't know how you come up with all of these ones, but I guess that's why you're a freelance consultant in your day job. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's needs, needs, drives the, uh, needs drives the outcome, I guess, like it does in any situation in life. Necessity is the mother of all invention, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I, I, had a, I had the pleasure of actually editing some of Riverine Warfare, and I think the, the part that really struck me was, was I had expected um, something like campaign book scale to bolt action as you sort of alluded to but i think you've actually sold yourself short on that i think riverine warfare to vc on the trail is what vc on the trail is to bolt action i think it's just such a massive improvement that adds all of these interesting dynamics uh to the game that don't normally exist and i'm i'm actually really looking forward to playtesting that do you do you know when everybody can expect to get their hands on it yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to get some photographs done of some of the vessels, and I'd like it's, it's pretty much ready to play test now. So I'll talk to David about this and uh, see when he wants to sort of put it out there. But um, you know, we could play test it at any time, really. It's it's going to feel like driving tanks in water a bit because you know <laughs> the way armored vehicles work is pretty simple in bold action, and you know there will be that sort of ability to to sort of have turrets and you know double twin mounted weapons and you know, 15 different weapon systems on the one platform. And in some cases, you might have a barge, which will act as a firing platform, which essentially makes it equivalent to being on solid ground, but floating in water. So things like that. There'll be a few different mechanics to deal with the way weapon systems worked in Vietnam or the way they deployed. Yeah. But yeah, we'll start that pretty soon, I think. Fantastic. There's a... I've got water in recently from some uh, suppliers over in the United States to some watercraft. I've built some of my own, but there are a few that I wanted to get, which I couldn't build because I don't have the skills. So now I've got those. I just need to, to actually put them together and we should be ready to play some games. Awesome. I know there was a there was a really good idea that you had of basically treating um, the larger boats as buildings that you could f- use teams uh, to fire out of the building. <laughs> Yeah, because during the during the uh, the early part of the riverine warfare, they started they used um, landing ship tanks as um, offshore supply bases, and these were more or less immune to attack. I mean, there were a few attacks by um, scuba equipped um, NVA and VC to attack these vessels, which were you know in some cases pretty successful. But uh, as it evolved, they started to develop these things called advanced support supply bases, and they were based on a, a number of barges tied together with infrastructure built upon them. So they're essentially moored buildings, if you like. So it sort of made sense to me that we treat them as a moored building. So we have one of these support bases anchored to the shoreline. There'd be a free world force set up inside these things. There'd be infiltration forces around them trying to, you know, either escape or to attack these these infrastructure bases. So we treat them as a series of buildings. That's that's actually really interesting. How asymmetric? I mean, you know, when people talk about Vietnam, I think the asymmetric warfare and irregular warfare being sort of the hallmarks of the Vietnam era. But how? Just how disparate was the comparison between uh, VC and NVA and the U.S. forces, particularly in sort of the Riverine era? 
I think it was very disparate. And I, one thing that, that I think this game will show us is that it won't necessarily be all that balanced. It, it's going to be a more of a historical <laughs> study. Yeah, okay. you're going to have things like a river monitor with a 40-millimeter cannon, you know, two 50-caliber machine guns, a 20-millimeter rotor cannon, plus another four potentially 50 cals hanging off the side. Yeah, or you right. might with two flamethrowers. These things are very, very powerfully armed. And they're going up against, you know, what is essentially an infantry force with pretty little in the way of, of uh, armor or heavy firepower. So, yeah, it's it, making the um, the theater selectors uh, was quite challenging. And uh, you're going to be facing off with some pretty interesting tactical situations that might be terribly familiar to anyone. But it'll feel like a tank wars game versus an infantry unit game. And sometimes <laughs> they'll work out a bit asymmetric. So you will feel quite asymmetric. But that is the point. It's um, the point is to try and represent how this actually played out. Um, anyway, we'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, uh, f- fingers crossed that. Uh, but I think with all the effort that it's gone into, it's going to be fantastic. So that's um, that sort of leads us into this escalation league that you've been working on. So not only do you write mission packs for you know VC on the trail, do you write campaign books for VC on the trail? You actually also have basically by yourself organized and put together uh this firefight escalation league for bolt action so for those of the audience who doesn't know firefight is um a scaled down version of bolt action where instead of uh, one squad being one order dice each individual soldier is an order dice and normally warlord games in their experimental rule set for firefight recommends you play at 200 points so why escalation league for firefight so where this all started was a conversation I had with Andy Lawson where he suggested the idea of this firefight escalation league. So I sort of took the lead from there. And I know there's a, a large number of people in the community who like very competitive games, and I'm one of them. But as I've aged, I've actually started to enjoy less competitive games, and I've really enjoyed multiplayer games where it's really more about the social interaction and less about the game. So this was an opportunity born of the Yardrang event from VC on the trail that we did with six players and your varsity event, which was also six players. And all and both those events were a hell of a lot of fun. And you ran a, a, a firefight component to that, which I missed out on, unfortunately. So it was leveraging on all those things. And I wanted to I, I wanted to try and simulate the idea of the player being on the table as an inexperienced second lieutenant. <laughs> so you're a very vulnerable character, but a character that you would become if you ever were unfortunate enough to be in that situation of being thrust onto a battlefield and actually trying to survive somehow <laughs> with a small group of soldiers under your command who probably have a hell of a lot more training experience than you do. I think it's uh, quite ambitious to even commission myself in that scenario. <laughs> I think to even uh, consider myself as an officer in, in in that environment would be, yeah, perhaps arrogant is the right word. Fairly confronting, I think. And um, anyway, so it's just a way of trying to use the game a different way. And Firefight, I think, is a fantastic add-on to the game. It's a free supplement of all the games put out there. It's still very much an experimental rules thing. And I think on their um, on their uh, document, they say, you know, we're developing this, give us some ideas. So this is an opportunity to create some ideas around Firefight and then put it in a multiplayer environment. Make it into a bit of a, um, a, a bit of a role-playing theme as well with your own character on the board. And uh, you'll start off with 40 points, which is not much, which buys you, you know, three to four men as veteran or uh, regular with a rifle. And uh, you might have two or three other people on your team and off you go and you try and achieve a certain mission. Yeah, okay. That's, if starting at that 
point with about 40 points. If you go, uh, is the lieutenant free? Yes, free. So your model's free. Now, uh, the escalation format allows you to gain what's called experience points, whereby if you achieve certain things, like, for example, you win the game or you survive the game somehow, (laughs) or you you enter into close combat as an inexperienced second lieutenant and somehow you actually take out the enemy, you'll get an experience point for that, as you would expect. And as you build up experience points, you'll be able to promote yourself up to the point of a major if you survive long enough. Fantastic. And it's sort of hard back to the idea that in, in these conflicts like the Second World War, promotion was as much about survival as it was about anything else. That if you survive long enough, you'd probably get promoted, um, you know, if you were any good. And uh, so but a lot of people didn't make it. Obviously, they were wounded or they, whatever reason, were, uh, you know, sort of didn't actually survive on the battlefield. So it's an idea about, you know, sort of trying to get your model to survive. And it's also the idea is to get your team to survive and I suppose when we play bolt action, it's it's all in you know hard battle, and you know casualties are taken, and this is this is not necessarily about that. You're trying to achieve a mission without necessarily sustaining lots of casualties. So it's about preserving your force while at the same time achieving an objective, which actually makes the game a lot harder. One of the things overall that's often missing from wargaming, particularly from from a competitive standpoint, is the there's no such thing as a pirate victory in in a war game. Yeah. Um, and there's no such thing as too many losses for winning a mission, yeah. particularly in a tournament setting. And I think it's it's actually really interesting that you're trying to capture that with experience. Yes, and the other thing I'm trying to capture is, so let's say that you start with your Game 1 Escalation League or you round one with a veteran unit. If you sustain more than 30% casualties or more than one, more than two-thirds casualties, then you'll get that squad busted down to regular. If that regular squad then sustains more than two-thirds casualties, it gets busted down to inexperience. By the same token, if that yeah, squad's wow. high, with less than two-thirds casualties, it goes to the next high level. So let's say you start with a regular, all of your guys survive, or next game they'll be veteran because they've now got experience, they used to working together, and they now understand how to operate in that environment a little bit better than they did before. So how long is the Escalation League going to run for, and what's the pace? Right, so it's going to run for six months, and we're increasing 20 points a month for World War II and 25 points a month for Vietnam. And the reason why Vietnam is different is because there's a lot more assault rifles available in the Vietnam area, so you need to be able to pay for that. Yeah. Vietnam starts at 45 points, so you've got the opportunity to, say, add an assault rifle to four regular riflemen. Yeah. You're also looking at including vehicles? Yeah, so about um, escalation stage three, you get the opportunity to add another unit. And that may be a, a machine gun team, or it may be a vehicle, or it may be another squad. And by the time you get to stage six, you might have three units inside your escalation force. But you've got to keep that unit. So if you start with a, a regular four Sherm Jager unit, the four men, you're going to keep that unit. They've been assigned to you on your commands. So you, you're going to keep that unit. You're not going to get transferred to a, a unit of US Marines or a unit of Japanese infantry. You're going to stick with that unit of four Sherm Jager for the entire campaign. Whether they're veterans or whether they're inexperienced shirkers, they're your guys. So you need to look after them. And they're going to be under your command. And how you treat them in the game and how they how they fare in the game will be reflected in how good they are at the job that you're asking them to do in that particular scenario. That's a really cool idea. I'm, I'm looking forward to get my hands dirty uh, on this on Sunday. You've sort of talked a little bit about some of the special rules. Uh, are you including any sort of homebrew rules into this? Yeah, there's quite a few because um, uh, so when we played Firefall before, we've noticed that the grenade rules are really powerful. Absurd, you what, mean? Yeah, the, the, um, the fragmentation grenades and the smoke grenades. And what we've observed is that people just throw smoke grenades as if, they're, you know, as if there's an unlimited supply of them and frag grenades, which is great. 
but it can really seriously unbalance the game when you have, you know, 15 smoke cannons appear and they drift and they don't do anything and they just hang around. And yeah, it's, it gets a bit, a little bit silly when that happens. So we've decided to introduce an audit test mechanic where if you want to throw a smoke grenade, you've actually got to dig around in your pockets and find if you've actually still got one. Um, right. And that will be done by the mechanic of an order test minus five for a smoke grenade and an order test minus four for a frag grenade. But only officers and NCOs and veteran infantry will be given the ability to take smoke grenades. So there'll be a lot of limitations on what you do actually have available. But if you fail that order test, the good thing is that you can still fire your rifle. So it's not actually, oh, okay. yeah. So there's a, there's a good pro quo there that yes, it's going to be harder to deploy a grenade, but even if you can't find one, it doesn't matter. You've still got a rifle. You can still take a shot um, that turn if Makes you sense. choose. You're a rifleman first. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing we thought about was costing it like one point for this and two points for that, but it just gets messy and it's not much fun doing bookkeeping while you're trying to play, play a game. So I sort of decided, I think, just do an order test and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I think that you've sort of touched on something there that a lot of people, uh, I think, are on the wrong side of often when it comes to mission design and, uh, and campaign design, is that some things might sound like a good idea and might seem like they make a lot of sense, as you said, one point per grenade. But yeah. one of the things you've got to be really mindful of is avoiding bookkeeping exercises, because that's yeah. all that that becomes. Um, exactly, and of course you get mixed up, and games are exciting. And next thing you know, you're at the top of turn three, and you, you've lost your piece of paper, and everyone's wondering to move on, and it gets a bit disruptive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how about national characteristics? Because they are um, famously absent in in uh, vanilla firefight. Yes, and they are famously absent in the firefight league too. So um, they're not going to be part of the thing. It's just a bit too asymmetric. Some nationalities don't have anything that you can use in firefight, and other other things have characteristics you can do really, use really well. Aspects such as tough fighters don't really work in firefight because once you no. cause a case, you can't go and cause another one. It's just not the way it works. It's a, it's a different game in that sense. Absolutely. So the way we sort of got around, around that is, you know, we've decided that, you know, okay, with if you're a veteran, for example, and all of your veteran units survive the the game, you'll get an upgrade bonus point, which allows you to buy certain things. If you're, um, so that gets, that's sort of a national characteristic proxy, if you like, some sort of benefit. Tough fighters, fanatics, scary blighters. You know, the way that I think we'll handle that is to say, okay, if you win the fight, you'll be able to um, re reconsolidate an extra three inches. Um, okay. Rather, give you that sort of ability to do that. Things like green, green doesn't really apply. So what we'll do instead is to say, okay, well, the if you're a green unit, the first time you're trying to recover from pins, you can remove D3 pin markers. And once that's done, you're no longer green. Right. Um, yeah, so that's something we'll try. Um, and flamethrowers uh, don't really work that well in firefight. No, they um, don't. So I think what we'll try there is using the template and uh, roll for effect using the template. And I'll just go back to the document here. So we'll roll the dice. On a one or two, it's resolved on a pen three plus using a one inch template. On a three or four, resolved on a pen three plus on a two inch template. And on a five or six, resolved at pen plus zero on a three inch template. So depending on how accurately placed that flamethrower weapon was, you'll get to roll a different template size on a plus three pen. So you, you could actually affect more than just the target unit that way. Fantastic. Um, but, but because it's not a unit as such as it is in the terms of bolt action, it's not a squad, if you like, anymore, there won't be any sort of break test. Um, mechanic around it you'll just destroy something or you won't yeah you still have to roll the hit first right you start to roll the hit but um rather than using some sort of weird flamethrower template which we might have seen in other games back <laughs> in the past, 
it'll be, again, utilising the templates that come with the game rather than inventing something entirely new, try to leverage off what already exists. Yeah, and I think that's that's also another good idea when you're doing this this homebrew stuff. It's the two things yeah. that that you can really easily get caught up in is brand new game maids and and bookkeeping exercises. And the important thing yeah. to consider is, you know, what are the things that already exist and which one of them can I use instead? Yeah, exactly. And you know, I did actually start by considering different templates, but you know, I soon talked myself out of that. The other thing that that um, I thought might be fun to try is. Um, allowing MMG teams to downgrade to an LMG for minus five points uh, as a means, given the low point size, as a means of encourage people to take teams. Yeah. But um, and the, the idea there was, so you, let's say you buy a three-person MMG team and you say, okay, well, rather than taking a mini machine, I'm actually going to take a Bren. Or I'm going to take that yeah. M34 with a, with, a, with a bipod rather than a tripod and set it up for light machine gun fire. That basically gives you what's essentially called a fire team. Yeah. Um, now you think about that, right? So squads are typically nowadays, and probably even in World War Two to some degree, were split into fire teams within the squads. So there might be a machine gun fire team or a BAR fire team and then an infantry fire team. And games like Chain of Command have that sort of sort of duality inside squads. And this is a way of allowing you to, to, to simulate something like a fire team based on a heavy weapon like a light machine gun that your squad then operates with. And that becomes part of a second unit you can actually take in your say step three or step four escalation fantastic yeah you're you're spot on there i know um the us gi handbook uh for their 12-man squads actually split splits the group into three uh you've mm -hmm. got your bar group is three your scout group is two uh and everybody else makes um the the assault group so basically they call them groups a b and c um, yeah and sometimes mm -hmm. You know, there were actual anecdotes and revisions to the the uh, GI handbook where they actually encouraged splitting the assault group into two smaller groups and using, um, and then there was also a request to promote the BAR man into a lance corporal. And so the idea yep. was that the guy with the BAR would command his group of three, the scouts would be autonomous, you'd use your assistant squad leader to command half the assault group, and you would command everybody else um, yep. as a squad yep. leader. And so... Yep. The, yeah, that's actually really interesting that you're trying to capture that, and it's it's actually the the time period for this um, is early war, right? Correct, 1940 to 1943 in North Africa, Abyssinia, Madagascar. Fantastic. I think that's a yeah. so that means no Panzerfausts and no STG 44s. No Panzerfausts, no no uh, assault rifles. It's just bare bones SMGs, LMGs, you know, beams of various sorts, and only. Vehicles with a plus six. I'll have to double skins. check when uh, when the Australian Parachute Battalion was mustered up. Because yeah. I think yeah. the, when I was at uh, AWM doing uh, the Australian War Memorial doing some research on them, I actually found that their squad structure was very was had an absolute like tremendous amount of firepower. Every ten man squad was assigned a two inch mortar, a Bren gun, and a sniper rifle. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they basically, it was because they didn't, um, uh, because, you know, if you're a paratrooper, you're not really going to get much other support. So, yeah, Correct. fun. And Correct. They, they also skimmed a couple of guys from every squad to form, like, piat sections. So it was ah. just, like, ten-man squads with five piats in them. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so th there was a lot of this, what, you, what we might now understand as commando-style warfare, um, was what these guys were trained in uh, and this was yeah. 
a regular line unit. Uh, unfortunately, never got to see action. Um, but I think yeah. woe to anybody who tried to cross them. Oh, look, absolutely. That sounds nasty. And so I'll have to double check when when their order of battle or the war establishment was issued for them and see if they fit the time period. Otherwise, I will have to be true to form like in Australia and then yeah. just pick a, a regular line yeah. unit with inexperienced infantry and hope for the best. Yeah, well, the payout, as far as I'm aware, didn't appear until Sicily, which is just before or just after this game, this this uh, campaign ends. So we basically start our campaign in Abyssinia with the Italian offensive towards Berbera in yep. uh, British Somali land, uh, now known as Somalia. And um, we go into Egypt and Libya and do a number of battles uh, that uh, the Eighth Army were involved in, initially the Western Desert Force. Then we'll see the Americans make an appearance. They'll probably be there anyway. The <laughs> players go through to the torched landings and uh, the um, the final battles around uh, Tunisia or Tunis uh, that saw the surrender of the Africa Corps in mid-1943 and then the campaign stops. So we don't actually get to Sicily. Um, so we won't have Piats, we won't have um, Panzerfaust, we won't have Panzerschrecks, but we will have a very early model bazooka right yep. towards the end of the campaign. Um, which you can take at uh, reduced range, reduced uh, lethality, and reduced cost. One of the things that I'm really hoping for is to is to really. Um, I'm probably going to annoy a lot of my local allied players, and I don't know if I should ad- admit this on what is effectively a public forum, but I'm probably going to play quite conservatively in the first couple of missions. I'll start off with some yeah. experienced guys and really just try to get that, that role-play angle and really push it, because one of the things that I think would be really cool is is having names for all my guys and, and seeing some of them stick around to be veterans and, and pick up some of those bonus perks that we can get at the other end. Yeah, I mean, and when you do upgrade your your initial squad to veteran, they'll all become veterans. So the assumption being that they've been through, you know, their sort of initial battle or two, and you know they've got some new skills now. So they'll all upgrade. But I think that's a great idea. You personalise it, and the opportunity here is to make this a bit more sort of like a role play um, yeah. rather than another war game. And what are what are some of the perks that you can get once you hit veteran and pick up a few more experience points? So basically, the, the way we're going to run that is with something called bonus points. And uh, so each each game will have a number of um, objectives, some of which will allow you to earn bonus points. Now, if, you, for example, you're playing an American player and they've decided to take an early model bazooka, well, that's an, actually a very interesting weapon if you're a German player. And if you happen to capture the guy that's got that bazooka, that's going to give you a bonus point because the blokes in Berlin are going to be pretty interested to see what that is, and they're probably going to turn that into a Panzerschreck one day. Yep. So... Um, so you get things like that where you're trying to capture a particular weapon okay. or you're trying to capture an officer. So officers are officers are gold. In this league, officers are gold. They're representing you on the battlefield, so you have to look after them. And uh, some of the scenarios will be all about capturing an officer. For example, in the Escalation Phase 2, there's a game which is the uh, represents the initial meeting of the Africa Corps and the British Army just to the west of Alagala in Libya. And oh, yeah. one of the objectives is, because this is the first time the Germans have seen the Western Desert Forces, to capture each other's officers and get information about the capabilities and intentions of the enemy force. So you have to go into close combat and get hold of one of their officers. And you'll get a bonus point for that because you're getting information which is going to be very valuable to your HQ. And that'll obviously earn you a, you know, a, a quite a good uh, reception from your commander if you can actually achieve that. Other bonus points might be for, for blowing up a certain... Um, position or capturing a certain objective or achieving a uh, an exit from the board if you're trying to to sort of break through a line of defense 
So, and you'll be able to use those bonus points to 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 basically buy yourself in successive games a number of um, interesting things. And I'll just go through some of those now. So, I'm already excited. You didn't even have to tell me what they are. <laughs> yes, yeah, so one of them is going to be the ability to to, um, to get yourself an extra five requisition points, and you'll be able to spend a total of three bonus points in any one game after you've earned them. So let's say in game two you earn three bonus points. In game three you can spend one, two, or three bonus points to buy yourself a certain capability. Now you can spend one bonus point to buy an extra five requisition points. That's actually quite interesting because that might be able to buy you a BAR if you're an yeah. American player. It can certainly go towards buying you an SMG or two. Or you can actually... Um, Use one of those bonus points to make one of your infantrymen a rapid-fire guy, which basically gives him, once per turn, an extra shot. So if you've got a guy with a BAR um, and you assign him rapid-fire, then once per game he'll be able to take off three shots and use those in the same way a machine gun shoots. So that's actually quite an interesting thing to do. And it's only going to cost you one bonus point. If you have two bonus points, you could turn one of your guys into a first aider. And what this guy is going to be able to do is act as a medic but still be able to shoot. And uh, when beans, you'll be able to do a, a, a medic role for people that are taken as a casualty. If you, for example, take a sniper in Escalation 3 or 4, you'll be able to take um, something to give him a pen 1 ability uh, for the cost of two bonus points. Uh, three yeah, right. bonus points will buy you what's called Gunslinger. And this, this guy is going to be so incredibly good at weapons handling, he's going to get an extra shot every turn of the game. So he's going to be a number one target, but he's also going to be basically this rifleman with two shots. He's essentially going to turn him into an assault rifle with a 24-inch range by spending three of those bonus points. Or you could actually assign one of your guys in your um, team as a, a marksman. This essentially simulates someone in that team having a sniper rifle and being able to act as a marksman without need of a, the need of assistant, a bit like the, the Polish marksman in the Polish 1939 list. Yeah. So they, these are okay. the things you need wise upgrades. That's a way of creating a sort of a fair national characteristic spread across every list. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a really good idea, and it echoes a lot of what you might have actually seen on the ground level. Like, sure, it's a little bit stylized, but, but those differences yeah. in soldiers, you know, a lot of people talk about this, that every population is a bell curve, right? And yes. so, And having that uh, in a military environment, what a lot of people don't realize is it's still a bell curve. It's just shifted into in a different direction, and I think yes. that's uh, and also that really starts to show with a little bit of experience, right? These that little yes. capability starts to stick out. So I'm really looking yes. forward to. It. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun getting to that end yeah. of the the campaign. Um, and the other thing to qualify there, sorry, Gorchin, is that that, that uh, bonus point only applies to that one game. So once yeah. you've spent that bonus point, that capability only applies to that game. So that guy that gets rapid fire won't have it for the next games unless you give it to him again. Yeah, and again, that that makes sense. That's probably more from a from a balanced perspective is is rewarding the, those risky plays, um, but yeah. not not allowing you to sit on your laurels after you've had one lucky game. Yes. Is it? Are we sort of expecting to see the same things in the Vietnam as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the first game of Vietnam, which I need to actually build some buildings for, um, which I better hurry up and do that. <laughs> we'll actually see a, uh, a city fight on a fairly small board between hopefully you know four to six players, and it'll be all about um, trying to uh, relieve a hostage situation that's developed in this city. Wow! Uh, so that'll be a game, and. Um, that could be a quite a uh, that could be quite interesting if there's a few people carrying assault rifles around because those <laughs> things are 
unbelievably deadly as you'd expect yeah so uh, really really interesting to see how that one plays out we we've done a few vietnam firefight games and they are they are quick <laughs> yeah, very lethal oh yeah so that's going to be the plan there so we'll see how that goes with vietnam and um we're going to do basically one vietnam game per month over the six months and two world war ii game per month over the six months mainly because most people are into world war ii so that's yeah. what we tend to we'll cater to the bulk of the community and then there's a few people like me who like to to try different things like VC on the trail and we'll, we'll give that a bit of a stress test with Firefight. I think it's a really fun system and once people play it, uh, I haven't had anybody play it and go, oh, yeah, no, no, thanks, not for me. Everybody's <laughs> just sort of gone, ooh, this is a really fun way to play bolt action. Yeah, it's different and, and you'll find that you're thinking differently. It's not You're not going to be throwing units at the enemy because if you do that, you're going to be penalised. If you lose your entire squad... Now, I'm not saying that it's happened, but it might have happened in a few of the previous games. <laughs> you might end up with a whole bunch of inexperienced shirkers. Now, that means you're going to have a surprise, but it's going to make your job of commanding a bit different to than it would be with, say, a bunch of veterans. And you've also got... Are we playing a different scenario for every session? Yes. So we're basically going to start with two games, um, which are... One's going to, they're both going to involve an artillery strike at the start. One's going to be allied attack. One's going to be axis attack. So they're kind of... They're not quite mirror games, but they're, they're sort of intended to be balancing out as mirror games in, in, in the sense that attack defence is a bit different. Um, and you're going to be up against it. As the attacker, you're going to be up against it, as you would expect you would be in, in a normal situation. <laughs> um, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard to win. These games aren't necessarily going to be balanced. They're going to be based very, very closely on historical battles that took place. The, um, the first game is the assault on uh, Tug Agan, which was a hill uh, which was on the road to Berbera, uh, which the Italian forces attacked in uh, 1940. And the second game will be the Australian assault on the town of Bardia, which happened in the earliest part of 1941, set-piece battle. It'll simulate the initial assault by the uh, 2nd 1st Battalion on the Italian positions on the outskirts of Bardia. So the Italians will be in sandbag positions, or the Axis players will be in sandbag positions, the Australians will, well, our players will have an artillery strike go in, and then they'll be expected to assault those positions through pretty much open ground with a little bit of cover, a bit of barbed wire. So it's a, it's a tough game. Yeah, I'm suddenly not feeling very confident about taking a bunch of inexperience to start the campaign. Yeah, look, I mean, when we played the uh, the first uh, round at Outpost 60-30, um, all the games were pretty much working out the same. The The assault on Barty was a draw in both cases. We had two teams playing. Oh, okay. Um, so they were very close games. The artillery actually does balance things out pretty well. Um, and uh, we had the uh, the game on Tagargan was very, very close allied victories. Uh, right. And um, in one of those allied victories was purely because the Axis players had taken too many casualties. Um, but oh, they actually okay. they got more guys onto the hill at the end of the game, which really they won in that sense. They actually occupied the hill. <laughs> the point was to get you guys on the hill yeah. or to get them off the board. Okay. And in, in the end, they actually got more guys on the, on the hill than the allied players had, but they'd lost too many guys doing it, so they ended up losing that by a narrow margin. If people want to get involved um, where and read the players' packs uh, and know when these things are happening, where do they go? Um, then the Rockingham Historical Gamers website, there's an event page there. Um, you'll find it on that tab. It's set up for the 25th of October. 
So you'll find in that uh, chat on the event about three or four posts down, you'll find the players pack in the first two scenarios, Tugar Gun and Bardia. Um, and uh, that will be where you can get your information from. Fantastic. I'll make sure that we have those in all of the descriptions and to make that yeah. even easier for everybody to get involved. And so we're, we're sort of alternating, right? You're, you're, uh, the, guy, the event at Outpost is one week or a couple of weeks ahead? Yeah, that's for World War Two, and then we'll premiere the Vietnam scenarios at Rockingham Historical Gamers and then replay that round's World War Two games. So they'll sort of tag team each other. And I guess it's another way of getting a bit of interaction between the clubs. And they already interested me pretty well through the tournament scene anyway. But um, given that the spatial distance between where our post is and where RHG is, you know, the one south of the river, one sort of almost north of the river, not quite. Yeah. Um, you know, it allows people not to have to travel too far to get to a game. Um, and, you know, you can always play this game wherever you like. If you can get enough guys together, then just play the games and uh, keep a record of the score and you can run your own little league. Fantastic. Or you can send and I'll chuck it in the league table. It's up to you. I think this is a, a great idea, John, bringing all of the not quite disparate but almost isolated bolt-action communities together outside of the tournament scene. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time today, John. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about all of your great efforts. My pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me. And thank you, our viewers, for checking out another episode of the HMG Podcast. This was the next part of our interview series, Call Signs, where we are talking to members of the local tabletop community to shine light on everything that's happening around WA. If you liked what you heard, check out Western Tabletop on Facebook and YouTube. The HMG podcast can be found on Facebook as well. And we're on all the major podcast distributors. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe to be kept in the loop. Until next time.